0: Oh no. It said Zortex protocol, that's pretty stupid. Bug's back here now. Not that many. How many we got? Got a few. Shouldn't be too bad. Got a few little muchachos messing around. I'm streaming today, streaming across to the Virgin Chapo F.Y.M. Twitch stream, and I've got to stream free to the good people of twitch.com, or whatever the hell, TV. Hi, guys mosquitoes are here took a while but they're here now not that bad certainly not Wisconsin level but I'm being reminded of their their needling little noses their demonic uh, demonic aspects uh, although I am relatively lucky when it comes to mosquitoes because they bite me and you know it stings when they bite me the way it does anybody but I guess I'm not allergic to whatever the species the goo is that they put into the wound that makes people get the little uh, red bumps that itch Like I can, watch a, I can watch a mosquito land on me take a little pouch full of blood off and it's, nothing ever comes up I never get a, a, a rash does anybody else have that? I explain that to people and they're all baffled. Is anybody else not allergic to mosquito uh, saliva? Uh, I know that there's... A, it's, it's a commonplace... It's one of those things that people uh, think they know is like a fun fact that you could kill all the mosquitoes in the world if you could figure out a way to kill them. It wouldn't really undermine any ecologies. It would be a pure win for everyone. Because not only do they kill more humans than any other animal thanks to malaria spread, and of course now with West Nile expanding into the U.S. and marching up the globe, it's going to be even more vectors of disease... Uh, and they also do not provide, like, the primary foodstuff for any other animals, because that's usually the argument is, ah, see, you can't get rid of this animal because it's part of a, a chain. There's no animal or key, mis- key insect species whose diet is primarily, uh, mosquitoes. They're, they're a, uh, they're ancillary. So, if we could get rid of them, we could. That would be cool. Uh... And that's the kind of thing where, you know, we're not going to fix climate change, but someone will figure out a way to kill all the mosquitoes as they become more of, more of a problem as climate change accelerates. That's, that's how we're going to manage climate change. There will be no huge break that destroys civilization. All of, all of the, like the meta-problems emanating are going to be rationalized away and marketized away through some combination of technology and, uh, and uh, financialization. But the main thing, making everything worse, will just continue to go because there's no alternative to that. There's no profitable alternative to that. Uh, Someone asked me what blood type I am, and that's an interesting question vis-a-vis the the mosquitoes, but I'll admit it, I don't think I know my blood type. I don't think I've ever actually... I got one of them bleeding, and I'll watch. I'll see if anything comes up. Uh... Does anyone know if there's a correlation there? That'd be interesting to know. But yeah, I don't know. And yeah, that's probably not the kind of thing you're supposed to say out publicly anyway, but I wouldn't be able to if I, if I knew it. Now, I never gave blood because I was terrified of needles for a long time, thanks to uh, the fact that I went from being a kid who is terrified of needles the way normal people are, to a teenager who had every nightmare of needles that ever scared me happen all at once. Uh, I actually had a spinal tap, like an in, like in exorcist, which you are awake for. You're fully conscious of that. And there's not really an anesthetic. Uh, it's pretty horrifying. And just having that happen, I was just like kind of, I was in shock just because I was so unbelie- I was unable to assimilate that this thing I was terrified happening was actually happening to me, and so that after that I was just and ever since i've had this i've been got the main like traumatic elements is I have this fear of medicine and fear of medical implements and also uh hypochondria I spent years vacillating between different conditions that I was certain I had like I was a wa- i have uh I have some issues related to the the spinal uh, injury that caused cascading, you know, uh, discomforts in the body. And over the years, I've convinced myself that I'm, I have cancer a bunch of times. Uh, and then when that's no longer viable, I have been very sure I was about to have a heart attack. And, you know, the uh, you can always rationalize it like, sure, you know, you're probably not going to die of one of those, but odds are in America you're going to die of one of them, right, if, at some point. Uh, so I was in this thing where I, I was a hypochondriac, but I could never really have my... Fear dispelled because the hospital is just as scary as thinking I was die. The thing I was thinking I was dying of. I've gotten over that recently, though. Like the s- uh, spirituality, to sound hokey, has helped. Has genuinely done what I've I saw it do with other people for most of my life, jealously, which has soothed those kind of those kind of recurrent existential fears. Yeah, like, I don't worry anymore. Even though I'm older than I've ever been. And it got worse with time because I got more aware of, you know, bodies breaking down. uh, And just, like, the longer you're alive, the more likely you are to die, right? Just that's the actuarial table at a certain point. But now I don't feel that way anymore. I feel better. I mean... I, when I say about spirituality, it's like it's everything I've been talking about, like the Satori moment, the, the recognition. I have now what I what, sort of what I've intuited from reading about people's descriptions of like feeling the divine or something like the idea that there is a presence. And that was the big thing. That was my always rejoined to religion for my entire life was I, my brain doesn't work that way. I don't feel anything. I don't feel presence. And I don't feel that there's anything there but my own voice clanging around in my brain. And now I feel a presence. It's not of a person though, it's not of, an, I, it's not of a consciousness, it's of all consciousnesses. Like the, 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 the veil of Maya between me and everyone else, and everything else, and every time else, I'm aware that that is a membrane. I'm aware that there's something like vibrating at a different frequency beyond it. And that makes a lot of the uh, existential nightmare stuff that used to make it hard for me to enjoy anything really, less biting. Someone is uh, across across the sink here. That's what they call the interior parts of uh, of uh, like townhouse blocks in, in cities, like this, you know, with apartments and stuff like apartment buildings and, and townhouses. Well, it's a whole thing and it's all facing outward, and the inside is everyone's backyard, and that's called the sink. I can see a big puff of white smoke, like they just elected the fucking pope over there, and that means grilling is happening. I'm also going to be grilling tonight, uh, having having uh, having a little fun, gonna do some grilling, and do some steaks. Low, low low effort tonight. I do have the long term before the summer ends, or maybe I think September, maybe realistically, like like uh, sort of a goodbye to the grill thing. I'm gonna try to do the, the yeah less humid too, and I'm gonna try to do. Could try to do the brisket the all-day brisket that's the big project got to find a butcher and do that but that'll be later uh, I think for the rest of summer I'm just, or for the rest of August or anything anyway just doing regular stuff but it's a good example of, of like the uh, the hollowness of capitalism the hollow the hollow value the hollow rewards of this system so the thing behind, the thing in the middle of a block, an, uh, an apartment block in New York, it's called the sink, right? And it's divided up by the lot, by the areas. So this one, for example, it's a little narrow thing, the length of the house. And then, uh, because I'm in the servants' quarters, I'm in the basement. I get a little area here that you've seen. And then there's a wall at the other side. You've seen at the other side of the. Uh, there's a wall on the other, that's right next to the grill. That is a much bigger portion for the upstairs neighbors and like it's, it's got it's almost a, a lawn uh, and they also have the deck up there but that's because they got more money and so the advantage there is both of us now have this like secluded area where we can sort of have privacy and that's true you know and that has its uses but at the same time for everyone this entire area is completely broken up and blocked off And I just like to, sometimes I imagine, because there's a lot of trees, not in our backyard, but in the neighboring yards that are really nice. And I'm just imagining if this was like an internal park, you know? And I just feel like that would be, uh, that that that, that would be worth, that would, I think, be an addition. Because I think you could have enough privacy, like in the area around your home, to like do what you would do otherwise like have a cookout or something but then there would also be you could like take a walk there could be like a path in the middle here with the trees and everything as opposed to feeling like I am in a, and as it looks to you guys like I'm in a bunker And it's that, it's that thing of, like, the value, because the, 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 there is a genuine, you know, the, the promises of capitalism are not entirely hollow. Like, like privacy is, a, uh, is an actual thing that has use and value and is something that people need to be able to negotiate the, the pressures of dealing with other people. But as a totalizing value, it, is, it destroys so much that is vital to the very functioning of the human mind and replaces it with only further indulgence along the axis of isolation. I mean, that's why Infinite Jest is the book of the moment. Because he, he figured out, he saw where everything was going. Like, not only just, uh, not just in terms of how like loneliness was going to take over uh, the social order and just strip everyone of their souls, because they don't know how to relate across the chasm of experience to other people where they see them as equals and not instruments and the terrifying isolation caused by viewing all people like that. But he also predicted uh, Skype, and uh, I believe Instacart, and a bunch of shit. And his president, Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, is closer than any 90s dystopian vision of the president uh, ever written. There is one exception. There's only one other thing that I think uh, was... There's one other president idea, like for a future 90 sci-fi thing that is, in my opinion, the most perfect for future casting imaginable. So there is, so RoboCop has a sequel. RoboCop has two sequels. Less said about the third one, the better. It's not even R-rated. It's directed, I believe, by Frank Miller, or he wrote the second one. I don't know if he directed the third one. Anyway, dog shit. Uh doesn't even have Peter Weller. It's got that Canadian guy. It literally had a Canadian non union Canadian equivalent of Robocop. Phobocop, more like it. Zing. That's right, I said it. I called him Phobocop. Okay, Irvin Kirshner, the same guy who did uh, Empire Strikes Back. And you know what? It's another it's not quite as well the thing is it's not as good as Empire Strikes Back, but it's definitely better than its reputation. And, it's, and a lot of it's the, the fun of it is, is it's actually about like the making of a sequel. And my, the best sequence in that movie is when they show all of the attempts to make another RoboCop and they fail because like, the guy shows up and he just starts shooting the, the, the doctors and then blows his brains out and one guy pulls his helmet off revealing his screaming skull and then dies. Just the way that like the, the, the artist, the human, revolts against the idea of a cash-based sequel. But even with all that, uh, but with that kind of mindset... It's, it's a good movie uh, prescient it in its way it talks about uh, uh, Detroit being declared bankrupt and then sold to a company which is essentially what has happened to Detroit but there was another there was another screenplay uh, for RoboCop 2 not by uh, Frank Miller but by the writer of the first RoboCop Ed Neumeier and they never ended up using it and I've read it it's online you can find it it's not good uh, I will say that it is a. It is. I, I mean, it's always hard with scripts, especially scripts that didn't get made to imagine them in your head. But it's there's a lot in it that does not work. But there's one thing that's actually kind of just a throwaway that is so perfect that it almost redeems the entire project. Is that is that so? The premise is that RoboCop gets like ambushed and essentially disconnected. Like he gets he gets his plug pulled. And he ends up in a warehouse for like 20 years before some scavengers grab him and try to reconnect him for reasons. And, and then he goes to war. And, it's, and it's, it's, much, it's, pit, it's, pit, it's pitched at a much higher dramatic level than either the real RoboCop 2 or the first RoboCop. The stakes are much higher. It's like the fate of the planet and everything, uh, which is often thing that happens with sequels. And, but they m- mention in, in passing the president in this future world. And it's Bixby Snyder. And Bixby Snyder is the name of the I'll buy that for a dollar guy from RoboCop, the guy who's on TV every moment that they're watching television, except when it's Johnny Laser. Uh, And that's essentially what we got. We we have President Bixby Snyder. We have President I'll buy that for a dollar guy. Uh, the Star Wars sequels aren't good either. N- Ed Neumeier wrote those too. I think the budget has a lot to do with things. And collaboration, also very important. And Yeah, you got to give Ver- Verhoeven a lot of credit, because Neumeyer basically his entire career has been writing Robocops and Starship Troopers movies and none of them are as good as the first one and you gotta think that Verhoeven had a lot to do with that Someone asks an interesting question. Uh, is romance inherently reactionary? Capital R, Romance. And I would say, like anything, it's something that needs to be resolved. It needs to, it needs to be stripped of its reaction and, and, and it, because it emanates from a genuine desire, and that is the desire to transcend and, and rena- renounce the rationalization of human life, which is the desacralization of human life. It's not just that, but that's one thing that it is. And that process, while well, it's necessary if you want to overcome you know, the bounds of uh, incredibly limited tribal societies with no understanding of the natural world or ability to harness its resources, which you do if you want to create a human uh, 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 self-aware species, if you, to, if you want to immunitize the world spirits, which you do, I mean, it's not even a question of wanting to, it's inevitable. Uh, so desacralization has to happen because you have to be able to move in a world of objects, not in a world of gods and and, and you know powerful, powerfully enchanted symbols. You have to be able to to strip them to their to their uh, utility, but the process has to be managed by a a a intensifying heart elsewhere, and romance is that heart. And in the wrong hands, in the wrong moment, it turns into fascism. <laughs> Uh, if it attempts to suborn rational, to to the uh, attempt to enforce a a purely emotive, uh, a non-structured libido, that's not good. That's where you get the fascism. But like, there needs to be a sacri- uh, there needs to be a recognition of the insufficiency of the material world, and that's and the romance speaks to that. I got shit. I got uh, one second here. I might have to, I might have to log off, but I'll log right back on. I got a message. I got to respond to. I'm back. Are you guys, am I am I still here? Alright, here I am. I'm back. Sorry about the ads. Yes, I've been replaced by QAnon clone. The proofs... By the way, I got bit by... I got got stung by a mosquito. Or bitten, sucked off by a mosquito. (laughs) About, uh... What? I'd say about... 10 minutes ago, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got no irritation. I got no redness. I got no itchiness. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Does that mean that I'm the Messiah? Probably not. But until I meet somebody else who has that same condition, I'm going to have to assume it means that in some way I have been chosen by the cosmos to complete a great destiny. No, I'm kidding. I'm normal. How long does it take? I kind of assumed it would be instantaneous. Oh, man. I'm wondering if there's something I could spray out here to get these guys away from us. I don't want to make the grilling uncomfortable for people. I'm, uh, I'm still rocking the LaCroix. Got to finish these before I get a new one. Fingers crossed, Hard Cherry is next in town. By the way, guys, I got uh, I got chicken nuggets last night as I promised I would, and I used my uh, gochujang, the, the pepper paste, as a dipping sauce. I uh, mixed in a little ketchup, which is, uh, uh, a, a, that and garlic is the is recipe for the sauce they put on the uh, Korean fried chicken. Anyway, very good. It was nice. Uh, the spread of QAnon, it's inevitable, man. I mean, everyone has to resolve these contradictions. Everyone has to resolve the reality of bourgeois democracy f- uh, uh, losing its legitimacy in, in real time. Uh, and, and the flight to like a, a narrative, a, a compensatory narrative that allows you to believe that someone's in charge, someone's in control, and that you don't have to do anything It's going to be incredibly powerful, especially among the petty bourgeois, the most most alienated portion of the fucking economy in terms of, or uh, of the society in terms of, uh, like, being alienated from each other and alienated from any sort of uh, unconditional reality. The social basis for fascism and q is is a is a is a it's a uh it's a backstab myth a doschl's legend or whatever the hell they call it in german it's it's the november criminals all over again uh only the thing is is that the the, the nazi pitch and this is why fascism is not a useful term in my opinion to describe what we're going through so compare q on to, to the nazi doschl's legend backstab myth right uh the the nazi uh History, history of World War I was brave, powerful German Empire was in a position to win defeat the horrible uh, the, the dirty Anglos and the, and the, and the smelly uh, Jacques uh, when these uh, politicians, these SDP politicians or SPD politicians these triple parentheses politicians uh, rose up and stabbed them in the back uh, but that was just the first part of the narrative the second part of the narrative and we have to punish them Join the Nazis. Come out into the streets. March. Uh, Vote. Beat up a communist. Maybe shoot one, if you're really serious about it. Uh, And what does QAnon say? QAnon says, we live in this decaying shit realm that's supposed to be the greatest country in the world because the the institutions of governance and and social control uh, are ruled by a cabal of of child-worshipping monsters. Uh, not. They have the same otherness of the of the Jewish of uh, November criminals, but because antisemitism has become less of a cohesive social uh, expression and now more of a like a fringe uh, alienating thing, it gets turned into uh, essentially stuff that was taken from uh, culture. The same way that antisemitism is drawn from like folk European culture. Volk European culture was suffused with anti-Semitism because the, the Jews were the, were not part of the community. That's the that's the flip side of community, and why community is such a fucking fraught concept is because it's unity but it's also unity against. And that is why the fi- that's why there's a teleology to Marxism, is because a global self-conscious human species has transcended the 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 divide between self and other, between in-group and out-group. Uh and, and and but if in the absence of that, you have tribalism and you have fear of other, and so the Jews were always an excuse for why things went wrong because it's easier to take it out on someone else than it is to deal with an internal problem if you're on the top of the pyramid or the bottom it's still there so antiSemitism is a folk european uh, folk European concept that could then be channeled to explain away the the incongruity of the mighty German army losing a war to a bunch of frogs and, and Brits and, and, uh, and half-breed Americans. We don't have that. That's not really, I mean, it's part of the firmament and like the more abstract level, but it's not as, as, as uh, gut evocative or as widespread as European antisemitism was. It's now been transferred by culture, by, by, our, uh, by our Hollywood uh, dream weavers, ironically enough, into these archetypes. Which these guys have decided, this is the bad guys, and they're why we don't have a good country. And but the difference is, the next step for them is not. And now we have to stop them. We have to punish them. It's enjoy the show. Watch what happens next. It's yeah, there's bad guys in charge of everything. This but the institutions are not bad. The institutions are not that it produced this outcome are not. Irredeemable because those institutions are institutions I have a lot of emotional and financial, in a lot of cases, commitment to. No, there are still there is still uh, uh, there's an immune system that has been activated by us and by Donald Trump, and if we let him do his job, by gum, we're gonna fucking uh, we're gonna take care of him, but not by us doing anything. We get to watch, we, and we get to interact. We get to it's basically a giant game of Blues Clues. You get to follow the clues, but it's up to Steve to fucking, like, actually grab the thing. And that's why fascism is not what we have, because you need a society. You have to have a social dimension to politics to be activated for fascism to be an operative concept. And, and that's the thing that abs- the fascism concept obscures when we're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on, because it assumes a public, and we don't have one. And if you assume a public, it leads you to incorrect conclusions about what to do next because you're making assumptions about organizational capacity that are not true. We do not, we don't have the social fabric necessary to sustain or require that. All we need is the fucking technology of authoritarianism, which is what we have. All like you need this much, you need X. This is the amount of. Authoritarian control you need in a society where bourgeois democratic norms have been stripped away by crisis and can no longer sustain the social uh, friction caused by our uh, by ex- exploitation of capitalism because there's no more money to lubricate the exchange we're grinding gears here it's pure extraction we're being proletari- we're being we're going from being proletarianized to being reinsurfed under techno feudalism and it's like the mach- the chassis is buckling under that reality. What do you do? Well, you've got to have a certain amount of repression. You have to have a repressive apparatus to maintain enough of a social bond to keep these people in the positions as consumers and workers that we need them to be. So this is it. And it's a mixture of human inputs and po- political legitimacy and technology. And in the 1930s, like, the ratio is mostly human-political input, because the political sphere is engaged. Everyone's political. They, they just got democracy in, in Germany, for Christ's sake, at that point. Uh, Everyone was, the vast majority of people imagined themselves as political vectors and specifically the working class, all communists or, uh, or social democrats considered themselves part of a political project and lived politically and had a political, uh, and, and that meant that the government required a political legitimacy. And fascism was a mechanism to, uh, to, pro- to procure political legitimacy for capital, in, in, in the realm, by adopting a lot of the language, that's why they called themselves socialists, that's why there's a red in the banner, they actually said, why why do you want it red, the communist flags are red, and I think it was Hitler who said, or it might have been Anton Drexler who said, we want to out-herod-herod, like, they're red, we're redder, because at the beginning at the end of the day, fascism stripped of all of the confusing shit, and the, and the loaded emotional stuff, and the argument about, like, is it is it the theory or the praxis, before it was anything, it was a sales pitch. That's what distinguishes fascism. Every other political uh, ideology that dominated European uh, democracy at that point, from, from socialism to liberalism to arch reaction, embodied a class perspective. A specific class, or in the case of the center party, religious perspective. Some ax- An axis of identity that cut against capital because very few people saw themselves as capitalists, not the way people saw themselves as farmers and workers or Catholics. And so where's the mass constituency for for capital? Fascism emerged. The guys who created it, guys like Hitler and Mussolini, were con artists first and foremost. They had no real beliefs. They saw a need in the marketplace, and they filled it post facto with... The first postmodern political, the self consciously postmodern political movement designed as a sales pitch to an electorate in order to capture enough people in the, in the, in the space of the public sphere to confer, po- confirm political legitimacy on capitalism in crisis, which is what it did. The current model, now where we're living in, this same amount, you need the same amount relative size, right, of refreshing. Almost all of it is technology now, there's barely any public space. The public sphere has been completely deracinated and depoliticized and destroyed by suburbanization, by the long labor peace, uh, weakening uh, class bonds, to racial conflict, everything you could name, to television, to the internet. All of these things together uh, have stripped us of a social fabric and therefore stripped our institutions of the need for a certain degree of public political legitimacy that they used to have. The legitimacy is now just stark power in the form of our police power and our military. So that means that noth- there is no need for that pitch. You don't need to pitch anything. The ostens- the, 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 the mask will f- slowly fall, but at every level it will be legitimized by process and then reinforced by our techno-authoritarian systems of control. At no point will it intersect with a mass movements. Uh, someone asked for a good book on Buddhism uh, there's a couple, actually my friend, shout out to my friend John uh, who, is, who, is a, who can, he had a very similar experience to me uh, year before I did and has been on Buddhism for longer than me uh, when I first had my moment he helped me, hook he hooked me up, he got me a couple of great books uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Heart of the Buddhist Teachings and uh, Mindfulness in Plain English, which is apparently a textbook for school kids in Thailand and it's a very good entryway to the practice of, like, meditation and uh, and essentially trying in any way to shut your fucking mind off, which is the hardest thing in the world, for me anyway. It's insanely difficult, and I need help. <laughs> Zizekar Chomsky, I mean, at this point... Chomsky has ran out of things to say for 30 years because he does not have, in fact, a dialectical understanding of history. So all he can do is keep ringing the same dinner bell, keep saying that you got to vote for a Democrat because the Republicans are nihilistic. Well, the, over time, the Democrats, by embodying the, the values they do, and partially the reason they do that continually is because there's no pressure at the bottom to, for them to change because their votes, the votes of voters uh, are being held hostage by the party because of the very moral rubric that Chomsky endorses, like Chomsky tells them, you have to vote for Democrats because of the moral question. Because as distinct objects, the Democrats are better than the Republicans on some scale. That that is idealism, and it is garbage. The reality is, because the Democrats fear nothing from their base and fear no rebellion, fear losing no real votes from their base, as long uh, then can continue to be the party drifts rightward with the Republicans and in fact accelerates the Republican push right because if the Democrats push right like as a triangulation strategy that means that the Republicans have to go further right even independent of like the natural uh, uh, flow that pushes them right they get accelerated even farther right by the Democrats accommodating them. They're connected all these things are in connection with one another; they're not discrete things, and that's why I don't really have any use for Chomsky anymore. But that doesn't mean he's bad, or that like his classic works aren't worth reading or anything. Because everything isn't all or nothing; it's all on a gradient because everything's connected to everything else. So you cannot cut something off from its connection and determine it all to be all of one thing. Now, you can make 51% judgment, which is what we all do and need to do for everything because things do boil down to yes, no questions and binaries. But that answer is not complete. This is all of this and this is all of that. It is. This is 51% at least of this. Of course, if the Democrats lose, of course they'll go to the right. I mean, look how far to the right they are now. Look at, look at how the Democrats went from humoring people on Medicare for All to essentially curb-stomping anybody who even mentions the concept. Like, remember when, uh, when Obama pushed uh, the ACA as a first step towards socialized medicine, as something that they could be built on? Now half of these fucking people think that uh, socialized medicine is racist or something. But of course, that means they're going, to get push, they're going to get pushed further and further and further to the uh, left on social issues. That will, of course, happen. But only at the realm of rhetoric and symbol. That's the thing that's important to remember, is that everybody talking about this shit forgets that when you're referring to corporate and, and major party uh, uh, co-optation of social issues, they're doing it at the level of symbol and costume. And if they aren't, that doesn't help either because none of these problems can be resolved at the level of symbol or at the level of social issue because you have to make material changes to generate new social relationships that are more equal. See, somebody, somebody points out, well, fascism, if fascism is, as you have said, colonial efforts being brought inward, colonial methods of control being brought inward, isn't that fascism? No, yes, but that is a fu- that's an uh, element of a greater project. And to me, you have to strip, like, capitalism in crisis from fascism as a response to capitalism in crisis. I think capitalism in crisis necessitates, as I have said, increased authoritarianism resolving contradictions through force by, uh, by abolishing the play act, the kabuki of the political process that is no longer affordable. Like, it's, it's like I was talking about how you don't see squibs or real guns in movies. It's because the, 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 the line item, the amount of money they need on return on this stuff means it's not affordable. Bourgeois democratic niceties at a certain point become unaffordable. And then you have to resolve that because you still have a public to deal with who are used to a certain degree of niceties? They, you know, buy a dinner, girl dinner first, and with them being gone, they have to be replaced with something. And colonial methods of control are going to be part of it because that's where the state learns how to coerce in the absence of uh, any kind of uh, local political legitimacy. That's where that's where the sta- a state that is bound by in its c- uh, core, like the like, uh, I would say, even early Eng- like uh, early colonial England was to a degree. Like, they had the burgeoning democracy that was post-English post, post uh, English Civil War. Uh, certainly post-Revolutionary France, and definitely the United States. They have at their center, like, a, a, a basic political culture because there is a basic political legitimacy being distributed through a social order, even if it's exploitative, as they all are. There's still a, a, a hegemony, a buy-in at every level. Colonies, especially colonies of, like, invasion and and occupation uh, are zones where the authority is exercised, but there is no corresponding political identity and political legitimacy given to that authority by the people. It's just naked force. And so when when the political facade of the core uh, capitalism is no longer affordable, is dissolved away in the acid of crisis then you've got to bring back these instruments. And they've obviously been flowing there over time as, as the facade has gone away, but it accelerates with time. Fascism, in my opinion, the thing that's useful as a, as a historical and political concept, is that political project. And I would say that focusing on the term focuses on our, us, on an understanding of the political that is not operative. I think that made sense, right? That seemed like a good one. That seemed like it made sense. I've been trying to get at something with that, and I feel like I finally got it out of there. I feel like I pulled a sliver out of my thumb or something. I feel good. The thing is, is, is somebody's asking, like, is it historically contingent or is it ideological? It's both. Everything is both. The question is, what's, what elements are operative in the current moment you're looking at the, through it through the lens of? I would say the ideology of, not, of fascism is relatively uh, second order of importance. More important is its political efficacy as a concept to the current moment. And there, I don't see it. I believe it is linen. It's very nice. This is one of my favorite summer shirts. Yeah, it has an ideology. But the thing is, because it was a sales pitch before it was an ideology, it's inherently incoherent. It's, it's just a death drive turned into a, a party platform. And that is why it's so hard. It's so shifting because that makes it culturally contingent. That means the ideology is culturally shaped in a way that isn't true necessarily with other ideologies. Because it is, first and foremost, a channeling of native cultural emanations of alienation, specifically from like the dominant middle-class strata as it encounters economic conflict and social change that it cannot process. Uh, the, the downshine with the linen is that it always feels like it always kind of looks uh, re- recent, recently laundered and you get like the curled up the bacon but it's a, it's, a, it's a chill out outfit so it doesn't matter people are telling me that you could be the Ottomans in sieve. I absolutely want to see what I can do with that because I don't really think they could. I, Walter Scheidel is pretty persuasive that they couldn't have taken Europe. But in a video game, if I'm good enough, I bet I could do it. Also, I, I, I'm a big fan of just the whole like battle for the Mediterranean. So also, I would imagine I'd like to be the, uh, the Serene Republic itself, and see if I could create like I could like could I could I from Venice start capitalism in 1400 instead of 1800. Like, just get that puppy going. Then we may, we maybe we literally would have flying cars. Or the Earth would be a completely hollow cinder. Okay, someone said... Yeah, that seems more of a universal universalist thing. But that's a good one. I was thinking of, like, different things to shoot for. And I, like, get... Create capitalism in Europe... 400 years early with Venice. And that's, it's, it's, the Ottomans are a big reason that Venice declined and ended up being sort of a prefigurative model and not the beginnings of capitalism because it was the re, re it was trade, it was the reflow of, tra, of the redirection of trade to the northern tier that helped uh, jump started in the Low Countries and, and the UK. But also, legitimately the, 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 the culture wasn't ready for it because the the technology didn't exist to to accelerate it. yeah no I mean I mean there's no, there was no other way for Venice to go. I mean that's that's why these things are all kind of you know bad history. Because they they make you assume conditions that didn't obtain and undermine like the fixedness of things. And how like the, you really don't have a lot of options. You really don't have a lot of choice. Uh, in any moment. Uh, but in a video game, hey, maybe I can do it. People are also telling me to play Victoria. Someone told me that Victoria is the most realistic because it's got the it's, and the most materialist because it's got the most. Uh, fixation on creating an economy and sustaining like an industrial production honestly though that kind of sounds boring come on i'm playing a video game just give me a country to click on and so i can click on another guy and like overtake it or something I also would like to see if I could prevent the the, uh, Reformation from happening, for sure. Get a Habsburg uh, Universal Hegemony going with uh, Martin Luther's head on a stick. I played Kaiserreich. I actually went on left trigger and played Kaiserreich a while ago, and it it was terrible. But the thing is, I don't think anybody really knew how to play it. I would need experienced players with whatever it is. Thing is, though, if you end the Reformation, but it doesn't change the fact that there's this trade, trade thing in the northern tier of Europe, even if it doesn't get called the Reformation, it ends up being capitalism. But maybe it's a different version. Maybe it's restrained. Maybe it's in a horse. Maybe it's in teasers in a way that Protestantism wasn't. And maybe it goes... In a in a more humane direction i I mean obviously towards Armageddon towards annihilation towards barbarism, but maybe at a jaunt or maybe at a saunter instead of a jaunt i mean think I think that's really all you can ever talk about with counterfactuals is are you like are you lessening over time the impact of a process, not changing it completely because the flow is just not you can't pick out the thing that does it because it's all bounded together it's all it's all it's all it, It's all rhizomatic, as I hate as a term that is always fun to say to get people annoyed. Shittiest founding father. Okay, I like shittiest because it doesn't imply the historical judgment that I don't like making, like good or bad. Shitty is a personal trait. And that you can talk about. You can, you can talk about his historical figure. Like, is he an asshole? Is this guy a piece of shit? That you can talk about all day. Whether they were good or bad, especially if they were very consequential. Now you're you're mixing your categories up. Like you're trying. That's what ninety percent of conflict comes down to. Is that you've got like the meta spiritual dimension of something that is personal, and then you have the uh, the material, fully determined uh, material. Uh, relationship of items to one another, and one emanates for the other, but they, but the judgment you use for one is not the one you use for the other, Uh, but I'd say the shittiest just, like, personally I don't like him is Jefferson, he just seems like the biggest, like, just smug, posing prick, just, I mean, obviously there's the cheap, uh, there's the cheap irony of him writing the Declaration of Independence while owning slaves, but not only that, the way he wrote about slavery, the way he tried to like self-exercise like exert exercise himself from the moral uh question of it, just the um uh, and the way he was a slave owner too. Like he was uh given money I believe in Lafayette. It was either Lafayette or Kaschugo. Might have been, I think it was Kaschugo. Uh, uh was of course, you know, a Polish noble who'd fought with the Americans during the revolution. It was no new Jefferson. And he died, and he, he, he left a substantial portion of his estate uh, to Jefferson, uh, who was always broke, but the condition of the will was that he freed the slaves, and he didn't do it. He took the money, and he didn't do it. And it's like, this guy, and it's not like he was hard scrabble. he just had extravagant tastes. He loved wine, and he loved collecting books. And he, it was an, it was, it was the, there was no other conditions to it. It was just pure a sacrifice of any moral consideration on an altar of just purely personal sensual indulgence—it's about as bad a moral calculus as you can have. This is a shitty guy. Also, the yeoman farmer bullshit, jack me off forever—just a complete fantasy, no relationship to the to reality, no relationship to the wheel of history and its inevitable turning. Uh, just, just this pure moralistic, idealistic notion of like, well, cities are bad and have bad things in them, and, and, and farms are good and have good things in them, as though these things are not interconnected and and and, and, th- and require one another, and therefore moral judgment is, is totally beside the point. And of course, this brilliant idea of like, oh, what about a yeoman republic where everybody is a small farmer? Entirely predicated on the fantasy of continual expansion, which... You can't tell, and the thing about that is that you could say, hey, they didn't know any better. First of all, Jefferson knew better because he knew how big the country was. He literally was one of the only guys who actually knew because he sent Lewis and Clark out there after he bought half the fucking thing. And the other is that other people knew what this was going to do to us. John Quincy Adams, in his uh, diaries, talks very much about how like, the, the westward expansion is going to destroy the fabric of this country. The soul is going to be eaten out of it from within by this westward expansion, by this ceaseless demand for and supply of exportable land, takeable land, uh, conquerable land. Uh, Whereas the rest of these Virginia dynasty dickheads are just like, what, no, everybody gets a farm, it's fine, no social issues will ever emerge. We'll all be great. Conflict schmonflict. Even though, Schmuck. It's like Hamil- I'm not snorting anything. I'm doing my vape. Uh, how can you guys not understand the difference in the sm- in, in the sound? Come on, or that I'm not like moving my head up. You got to do the head thing, right? If I was going, if I was doing coke on stream, which I would not. I think I'm done. I'm not. I don't do coke. Uh, I would every time I did it, I would put on uh, "Manish Boy" by 20 Waters and go. Into the camera, because come on, good fellas. Am I right? <clears throat> you can climb a mountain, you can see the sea. Coke is a bad drug, very, very, no use at all for anything. Garbage. The junk food of drugs. And I mean, when you consider its uh, ecological footprint and the amount of violence that it, it engenders just all around, thumbs down on that one. I think cocaine must be popular. I mean, I wonder why people like it, really. I think some people just aren't, like, confident enough in their opinions to state them until they're zooted. Like, they have to have their, they have to be, like, have a button pressed that says, you know, tell your ideas. Some of us just have the confidence to just say our ideas to anyone, into any format. Ooh, this is an interesting one. Who is the most cringe president? That's a good question. I got I to gotta think back through here. Cringiest president. I would say from the modern perspective, and maybe even at the time, it's got to be Nixon due to his, uh, his raw need, right? Because that's what cringe is. You're cringing with embarrassment. You're cringing... Because you're imagining how bad it would feel if you had said that, right? That's why you're cringing. And Nixon, his entire public presentation was this hangdog, uh, very kind of self-consciously uh, self-pitying style. Uh, and then, of course, he, he, he debates with, Nick, with Kennedy and just gets trounced because he looks like a sallow loser. And then he does things like, after he lost the 1962 gubernatorial race to Pat Brown, he just vents to the media and he goes, you guys won't have Dick Nixon to kick her out anymore. I mean, with the, and then he had to resign. The only guy ever to do it. Embarrassing. Oh, God, can you imagine just giving it up? Every instinct in my body rebels against the notion, but I must step down. Of course, the guy wanted to be pre- All these guys, they've only ever wanted to be president. And he gave it up because of how badly he fucked up. And the whole time sweating, 5 o'clock shadow, talking about his mother. My mother is a saint. That's that's embarrassing. George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, also very cringe, because one termer and one termers are all cringe. Carter's cringe. Poor Martin Van Buren, as much as he was a political genius, is kind of cringe. The guy built the democracy around the the figure of Andrew Jackson, and then he gets turfed out after one term because the fucking uh, because of a, of a depression that started under Jackson, and then. Spends the whole time getting derided as a little fancy lad with silk cufflinks and fine wines, sitting in the White House. Even though he was the guy who invented the democracy, the Democratic Party originally founded around yeoman masculinity, and some fucking Whig, the party of the party of church boys and, and financiers, the the cityfied party, gets this guy to come in from a, a, a war, uh, for, a guy come from the from the from the uh, war with the natives which is exactly the kind of thing that Democrats waged unceasingly to keep the, the, the mob at bay with land. And he fucking says, I grew, up in a hard, I grew up in a log cabin and drank hard cider. What did you do, you little fancy lad? And it worked. Can you believe it? Embarrassing. Like the, mush of, like the rush of mighty water, all the country through It is the ball I'm rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And with it, we'll beat little Van. Van. Van is a used-up man. Damn it. Nobody remembers anything about Martin Van Buren. But maybe they heard that song. Van is a used-up man. I mean, that's a fucking diss. That's shade. That's tea, and I'm sipping it. The guy was a fucking political genius. The guy invented the modern political party, basically from scratch, from the ruins of the of the of, the, of the, the era of good feeling. And under the nose of poor John Quincy Adams, who thought he was living in a post-sectional America. Can you believe it? Van Buren saw, no, 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 this system, this conflicts, they're going to be resolved through political dreams. They're going to be resolved along party lines. They're going to be resolved factionally. The dream of a non non-factional democracy in a capitalist system. Where all uh, relationships produce uh, conflicts and contradictions that have to be resolved, will not involve party conflict. Foolish. Yes, Trump is not cringe, not yet anyway. Although he's getting there, I gotta say, if he loses, he'll be cringe. The whole thing will be cringe retroactively. But he's like, the more it looks like he's losing, the more cringy he is. It's honest. Like, he, not only are uh, I don't know how you would want to. It's interesting. This is like a good psychological experiment here, like a good or a good it's like psychological thought experiment. Like, this is a Heisenberg thing. So I really feel like as Biden has sit there, sat there at the high polls, certainly before the whole, like, as, now with the post office thing, everyone's convinced Trump's going to win. And they've already basically admitted to themselves it's going to happen, which means when it happens, no one's going to do anything. Because we've all essentially reconciled ourselves now to, oh, he's going to steal the election by, by uh, closing all the uh, post offices. And that means when he does it, we're all going to be okay with it. Because we're already okay with it, because we're letting it happen in front of us. I'm not blaming anyone for that. I'm just saying that that's what's happening. So before that though, when it looked like Biden was going to win, Trump's posts appeared lamer. They didn't have the fire. They didn't have the oh, it seemed he seemed more desperate. He seemed less sure of himself. But was that resp- him responding to the reality of the, of the of the of the the presidency maybe slipping away from him or more importantly, him losing something and making him a loser, which is all he really cares about? Or do I only perceive it that way? Because I think that he is losing his power. How could I? This is why we all need to get together. This is why we need to overlap our lacuna. Because I can't answer that question definitively about myself. No one can. It is only through the, the 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 stacking of experience that we can find a commonality and then like pierce a put a needle through it and find core out something close to the truth or closer to the truth that any one of us is going to get to by themselves. Obama, Obama, the thing is, he, it worked. I don't know if you can ever call a president cringe when he cruises through two terms. I mean, he got his ass kicked, but did he care? Like, all the stuff that he got his ass kicked on is not stuff that he cares about. What he cares about is, got two terms, is cool, hangs out with Hollywood celebrities, gets to eat the baby brains with all the other guys. Hard to imagine he's, he's cringe then. Truman can't be cringe because there's no more epic moment than the 18, 1948 election. Holding up holding up the Truman the Dewey beats Truman Chicago Times. You will not beat uh, that for onage. That gets you through a lot. Lyndon Johnson also very cringe. That's a hell of a cringe spell there. And of course of course, it comes after the coolest president, right? I would also say that McKinley and Garfield are cringe because they're the presidents who got assassinated but nobody remembers, which is brutal. That's, that's like absolutely... They're not here to cringe, but we get to cringe at the thought of being that, even though we wouldn't know. Because, like, you think about assassinated presidents, it's Lincoln and fucking JFK. And they have all those things in common, right? Oh, Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. Kennedy's secretary was named Lincoln. Kennedy got shot in a Lincoln. Uh, a Ford Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln got shot in a, a Ford Theater. And that completely ignores those two uh, losers. I would say John Quincy Adams is, was cringe in his lifetime, but is now uh, based completely. Andrew Johnson was was cringe in that he would do things like go on drunken rants. I mean, he was shit-faced at his inauguration, which was, you know, ad hoc in front of a judge because the president had just been shot. But he was hammered. He gave a speech. He gave an impromptu speech that was filled with retributive bitterness uh, and resentment because he was super uh, self-conscious of the fact that he was a Tennessee hillbilly. But he also pissed off. He like he was able to single-handedly like de- de- derail Reconstruction to the horror of basically the entire political class of the, de- the the winning country. Like we won that shit, and the party that won it was in charge of the entire legislature, and couldn't do anything or couldn't do a lot of the stuff we wanted to do because this fucking cornpone shithead was hooting a jug in the White House. Uh, so that made him base the fact that he was able to uh, exert that kind of a power in the face of. Unified opposition, almost. Jimmy Carter was incredibly cringe. Hey, everybody! There's this terminal crisis of capitalism happening. Uh, we cannot consume at the rate we used to. Uh, you guys just need to all wear sweaters and feel bad about yourself for being so materialistic. And and, and everyone's going to see the importance of that. And they're going to give me. They're going to pat me on the back for being straight with him That was for like five minutes. People did. He got a big bump after that speech. People forget that. But then, at the end of the... And then the hostage crisis happened. And it was like, oh, yeah, you're just a big uh, wuss. You're just a big fucking wuss. Yeah. uh, Carter was a complete uh, psycho. Did you guys know this? He did not have a chief of staff for his first two years in office. He was essentially his own chief of staff. Chief of staff is one of the most uh, intense jobs in Washington. Very few people do it for more than uh, two years. Unless they have, like, no family. Like, Andy Card, I think, was Bush's, uh, 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 Secretary of, or secretary of State, Uh Chief of Staff. He was Bush's Chief of Staff for the full second term, but he, like, had, he was like an incel. He had no wife. He had no kids. It's usually two years. And he was President and Chief of Staff for the first two years of his term. Uh, wow. Nutcase. Uh... Yeah, no, Carter sold everyone a good bill of goods. Carter was Obama. And the reason he's cringing Obama isn't is because Obama got that second term, baby. Can't fucking, no phase. Can't see him. Got that second term. Carter got the boot because the forces allied against him in, in the wrong order. Booyah, out of here. But he, uh, he sucked. And he, he, he got people in because he convinced people that he was a good person. That he was a good human being. And that that's what mattered. Because everyone had been horrified by Nixon. And because we cannot systematize anything. Because we have to personalize everything. That's what this culture does. Nixon's evil had to be described in personal terms. His personal per- personality and his personal wickedness. And that meant that the problem of uh, the lack of trust we now had in our political institutions, it's not because gas has you know, gone up 100%. It's not because every uh, factory in the company, country is already starting to shut down, uh, that, that you know, things cost more and, and people are making less. Uh, no, 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 no. That has nothing to do with it. It's because we have evil people in charge. And if we get a good guy in there, he'll be the good. And the thing is, is that that was also what Carter thought. Carter thought he was a good person. He wasn't lying, and that's why people believed him. He was not uh, selling people some fraud about how he was a guy, great guy. He really thought he was a great guy, and tending his moral garden was the only thing he really cared about. And that meant that when he was confronted with the crisis of, uh, you know, of stagflation, his answer was, well, uh, we need to be virtuous, and that starts with me. And one of the most virtuous things I could do is start imposing limits on uh, what's politically possible in terms of spending and tell people that, hey, you know how we're the Democratic Party and our job is to provide you with the goods of capitalism? You don't get any of that. They still get to keep all the gooker. The, the corporations are still in charge of everything. They still run your life and they demand your money uh, and they get all the profit, but you're going to get less money and you should, you, should, you should just fill that hole with spirit. I'm not going to give you even an idea where to get any of that. Read some for Christopher Lash or go to church. I don't fucking know. Uh, and it's virtuous of me to level with you and you know what? If I lose power, if I get out of office, it's virtuous too. And Carter losing was obviously kind of like, maybe not at the time, but in retrospect, it's probably one of that sicko's favorite moments of his life, is losing. Because he feels like he now can, in his mind, believe that he uh, did what all Christians are called to do, and that is imitate Christ in his life. He was, he was martyred. He was, he was, he was crucified. Uh, on a cross of fiscal responsibility. All right, guys, I'm out of here. Good talk. Bye-bye.